Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast for Wednesday, June 17th. My name is Greg Brady here all week for Bill and next week as well. We've got some good segments coming up for you today in this middle of the week. We start by talking about long-term care. It's a big problem. Uh, we don't know the direction it's going to go even post-pandemic, post-COVID-19. But the news has been dramatically awful. The Roslyn Retirement Residence has been shut down. What happens to the residents that are in there right now? What can we find out when investigations happen. Also, the McMaster Student Union passed a motion. They want the head of security on campus fired. He's a former police chief in Hamilton, Glenda Care. What's their reasoning behind it? What kind of security force are they hoping to see? And the criticism from some has been they're taking advantage of the current political and social situation to get what they want. But is that true? Or have they been asking for his removal for a good chunk of time? Lastly, sports is going to return now that we're headed to stage two. What's that mean for a sport like soccer, which has great youth participation numbers? It's played outside. It's not hockey. It's not basketball. When the province gets back to returning to play, how different will a sport like soccer look for parents and for the players? We'll get to all that coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We have to start with uh, with something that is alarming, concerning, and I don't know the right direction to go uh, in this particular case. Uh, we have to talk about long-term care homes. And I watched a story on The National last night. I was flipping around. I watched a uh, little, little CNN, little uh, PBS, believe it or not, and then came across, I think I came into the, the National around you know, 25, 30 minutes in. So they had a longer piece on the, I mean, what do you call it? The utter tragedy that transpired at Orchard Villa in Pickering. And it was, they did an investigative report. They had actually gone in there with hidden cameras a couple years earlier, around 2016, 2017. Um, And the conditions weren't great. There was an outbreak of some kind of flu then. So this is way pre-COVID. I want to clarify that. And somebody wanted to take a tour and they brought in a hidden camera. Then they weren't supposed to give a tour, but they did anyway. And this person had all kinds of access to spots and places that they should not have had access to is the best way I can put it. But 78 residents died of COVID-19 at that particular uh, place. Roslyn Road, you probably heard the news yesterday, um, just one of the worst outbreaks in Hamilton, period. Uh, Now has had his license revoked. And I'm watching this last night, so I know that going into watching this story on Orchard Villa. And I kind of had a good sense prepping the show that we were going to lead with long-term care homes today um, for a number of different reasons. And I, I do want to get your reaction to it. Um, but they, uh, they will not, you know, they will not be open at any time uh, soon. And they, uh, here's what Phil Norris said, the RHRA, and that's the retirement homes regulatory authority. Yes, there is one of those. Some of you may have been wondering, um, said the regulatory body issued the revocation notice Monday Quote, after careful review and consideration of the information collected through inspections, complaints, and reports from staff and the public. 14 deaths, uh, 64 residents, 22 staff as well. And we'll focus on the deaths sometimes, right, in the media, and we should. We see those numbers every day. We're like, this many out, this this many new cases, this many deaths. But when I, when I think about the longer term, and, and when you play the big picture game, the staff is is a great concern. That's not an easy job to begin with. That's not a, you know, sometimes we go to bed at night and we, we say, am I making a difference in what I do? 
think about how many times you ask yourself that. And you could be, basically, there's jobs where, where you shouldn't have to ask yourself that. If you are a doctor, if you are a EMT, I think if you're a teacher or college professor, university professor, you, you should feel that you are making a difference. You know, oftentimes I do three hours of talking about sports on the radio and wonder, am I making a difference? And you have to convince, you have to pat yourself on the back from time to time and say, I'm entertaining people, potentially. I'm informing people, potentially. And when I'm not there, uh, either in the short term or the long term, I hear from those people and they say, I'm disappointed that I'm not, like, you become part of the fabric of their routine. Okay? You grow into a routine for someone else. I have my routines, and there are people in the media, there are people in my neighborhood, there are people in my social circle that become part of a routine. And when I don't have that for five or six days, you reach out and you say, hey, what's going on? We haven't talked in a while. We all know how that works. But we are going to really struggle going forward with the information that we're going to get about retirement homes and long-term care centers. There's a lot of people that, and I think there's three levels to it. There's the people that have put in, put people in the homes already. And if they've uh, lost a parent, if they've lost um, an uncle, an aunt, an older brother, an older sibling, um, it's extremely regretful. They're wondering if they made the right decisions. We all are going to fight this someday. Okay. Because here's the, here's the one patented truth of life. No matter how much we feel we've got value, no matter how much we sometimes question either our self-worth or we realize how conflicting life is in general, we're all going to get old. We hope so anyway. We'd all sign up. I always play this game. We always would sign up to get to a certain age and then say, if nothing bad happens until this age, I'm good with it. Like mine's around 78. You get me to 78, you give me 30 plus more years, close to 35 more years of existence with minimal health problems, and then if, I, if it all goes south after that, I'll take it. What we don't want is health problems in our 40s and in our 50s. And as a result of that, and certainly in, in younger, right? And we don't want any for our kids. So we, we would sign that pact, the deal with the proverbial devil. We would sign that if it got us to a certain point in time with the knowledge that we get to a certain point, and I've got both my parents still, and my wife's got both her parents still, but we also take our eye off the ball sometimes, and we don't check in with them enough because life gets busy, and we prioritize things, and sometimes we wonder why they don't check in with us more. That's fair. That That's reasonable also. Think about if you're a parent of kids who are... Eight, let's say they're eight and six years old right now. Let's say you got an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. Can you imagine not talking with them? I mean, not seeing them and not talking them, and not talking with them for a week or two weeks. You can't picture it right now, but it starts to happen, doesn't it? You get older, you get busier, you get employed, you get focused on your job, you get obsessed with certain aspects of. Your job, your personal life, you're, you know, working out, traveling, and you leave that stuff behind. So we all are going to fight this someday, and some of you are fighting it right now. And that's the second layer, is people deciding what to do about long-term care residences right now. Like, I, I say long-term care, or the acronym LTC, and you're cringing a little bit listening to this. I can tell, because you've either had an experience with it that wasn't awesome, you're concerned that you'll have an experience soon that won't be awesome 
because it's we're at a bit of a low ebb for um, you know great Google reviews for long-term care centers in Ontario and across our country right now. I don't think that's talking out of school. I think that's a pretty fair statement on my part. And I'm trying to be fair here. I always will be. And the third factor is, let's take it from the personal perspective where you really do look out for number one. We talked about that on the show yesterday. At some at some point, it's all about looking out for number one. As broad as you want to wrap your arms around your, your street, your extended family, your community, your work colleagues, sometimes you got to bring it right back into you and go, am I good? Am I okay with this? Am I able to, to, to take a step forward today? And it has not been easy in 2020. And it has certainly not been easy in these last three or four months. It will get easier, but when will it actually be easy? Think about that sentence. It will get easier, but when will it actually be easy? Because I can picture myself in an LTC, (laughs) okay? And I don't like the look of it. And we're talking, yeah, 30 years from now, I hope. I hope. I'd love to live in my own home until I'm uh, in my 80s. Some of you I'm I'm talking to right now may say, yeah, my dad's pulling that off. My mom's pulling that off. Both of them are pulling that off. And that's great. That's fantastic. But we've got to find a way to move forward on this. And the biggest things, look, and there's going to be an investigation into, you know, Roslyn. There's going to be an investigation into Orchardville. And we're going to find out some things, whether it's from Ontario's chief coroner or whether it's from a few other important people on this. By the way, yesterday, uh, I wanted you to hear this. Graham Webb was on Scott Thompson's show, uh, 12 to 3, later on today, right here. I lead right into him uh, till 12 noon. He's the executive director of the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, and he said though the license has been revoked, right now, um, the problem is evicting tenants. They're still there, and this is not going to be a very simple process to find these tenants that are at Roslyn a new home. The tenants are still residential tenants that have the right of all other tenants, including the right to continue to occupy uh, their premises. And so the operator would have to go through a legal process to try to evict the tenants if that's what the operator is intending to do. But I, I think probably in this situation, we're a, a, long, a long ways from that, uh, uh, from that happening. So what do we do? Where can we go? There's three calls to make. Either you make these public, you have to find a way to make government run, government run retirement homes and LTCs, or you need an oversight group to handle this privately because private means making a buck. Okay. There's a lot of people. We, we have these debates all the time and I've lived in the States for nine years, public health care, private health care, two tier system. I can tell you from living in the States, the care is pretty damn good. If you have a job and have benefits. And it ain't if you don't, okay? That's, I, I had no, I don't, I wouldn't say I loved going to the doctor, but I knew I'd get well taken care of. I did love my doctor. I did love our pediatrician for our little boy who was born in the States in 2006. And we lived there into 2008 or so. I came up to work here into 2007, but we were, my wife and son were still there. But that's not, that, that doesn't, that's not going to work for everybody, a two-tier system. What do we do? This is a crisis, okay? We're going to move from the crisis about COVID, and we're going to move from, hopefully in a positive direction, when we're talking about systemic racism and equal opportunity. Again, I always stress that equal opportunity is not equality. We won't ever get to full equality, okay? But we'll try our damnedest to give equal opportunity. 
Where are we going with this particular crisis? Because when the other two are gone, this one, this one is still going to be there. Your phone calls, 905-645-3221, 905-645-3221. Do we have to get private industry out of caring for our old people, our seniors, okay, our people in our 70s and 80s and older? Because it's about making a buck. If I ran a business, I'd want to make money. Okay, and I don't know the corners I'd cut. There's a fine line. Any business owner listening knows exactly what I'm talking about. You don't want to lose customers, but you can't give stuff away for free. You can't overdo it. Can we do this publicly or does it have to stay private? Your thoughts on what I'd certainly deem as a crisis in long term care in your community, in my community and in our entire country, coast to coast. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a big story. We want to give it its proper attention. Campus police chief uh, Glenn DeCare, well, the Mac University Students Union doesn't want him there anymore, and they want changes made to the campus security force. Big changes. We're seeing a lot of this, not just with police forces across North America, but now we go to a university campus where if you've been on a university campus, the security matters. It makes people feel a lot safer. It, it's That's the concept. It's what it's supposed to do. We have two guests joining us uh, to discuss from the student union. First, we welcome in Giancarlo DeRay, who's the president and CEO of the Max Student Union. Giancarlo, thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on here, Greg. Yeah, and Fazawa Issa, vice president of education. Do I have that name right? I gave it my best shot. So close. It's Fazia. Fazia. I, w- I really appreciate that. Well. L- let's start there, Fazia. I'm going to ask you whether the you know the timing of this, it, in, in your defense, this isn't the first time this suggestion has been made. This isn't the first time this urging is, has been made by the student union. What are the issues with uh, the former police chief? What are the issues with Mr. DeCare uh, that the student union is most concerned with? So really, the, the biggest issues are DeCare's past um, when he was head of Hamilton Police Services. Um, you could see that he created the action team. Um, his team incorporated actions such as carding and racial profiling. Um, and I think that's just, and, and really also just a lack of transparency as to how security services operates on campus has really kind of accumulated to make students feel unsafe on campus. Um, so those are the main issues, and those are um, kind of the issues that we spoke out against in our statement and the memo we put out. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of the core issues that students feel unsafe about, um, and that's kind of why we we brought this to the forefront. Giancarlo, could it be could the case be made by some of DeCare's supporters that he was not necessarily given what we call a fresh start? As 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 reference there, some of the issues linger from his time with the city or have students raised concerns since he's been on campus, raised uh, concerns and issues that they've been, you know, dissatisfied with and concerned by? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that it's important to note that that while we don't currently have data that would uh, support any kind of uh, trending of discriminative uh, engagements or racial profiling specifically on campus, we do have lots of anecdotal uh, stories that are being shared by students. Uh, we've also not heard from Glenda Care on the issue uh, since he was hired in January of 2016. Uh, so nobody, uh, Fazia and I started our, our positions May 1st, uh, but this has been something, uh, as was mentioned before, since his hiring in January of 2016. Uh, and since then, the, the, the voices from students and, and the calls to the university uh, to terminate him from his position, to remove him from campus, have been pretty clear. Uh, and honestly, we haven't heard a lot back from the university. So 
students are definitely feeling unsafe on our campus. There are mm. communities on our campus that are feeling targeted. And honestly, students are just looking for action from the university. Wh- who are the communities that are feeling targeted, Giancarlo? Let me follow up on that. Yeah. Uh, so specifically our black and indigenous communities and our uh, communities of people of color on campus uh, often are feeling targeted. This is, uh, these are the same communities that uh, were targeted through carding, racial profiling in Hamilton. Uh, so not a new story here. Fazia, Giancarlo describes it, uh, and, and I'll take his word for it, face value, as as not a safe campus. What are things that you see um, that could make it feel, is there anything besides the changing of this, the changing of the security force, the changing of, of who runs it? What could make students feel more safe, whether they're in first year, whether they're a grad student? What would encourage safety? Well, I think um, the first step is to see that the university is taking this seriously and see that the university is committed to ensuring a safe campus for all students and for BIPOC students on campus. Um, I think in terms of safety, really just increase transparency as to what's going on on campus. Um, as Giancarlo mentioned, there are a lot of anecdotal stories, um, but nothing, I guess, that's pieced together to really make up the full picture of how students are interacting with security on campus. Um, so I think just increased transparency, actual action from the university, um, and of course the the big ask of terminating the contract. When we talk, well, let me follow up on that. When we talk about dissolving the constable unit or disbanding the security force, the school and the campus need some form of security. What's an ideal system of security? Like, is it student volunteers? I know when I went to university, we had that. If you wanted someone to walk you home from a class of the same sex, that could potentially happen. We had, um, you know, lighting was was installed that wasn't there maybe a previous year because they'd kind of missed it in a parking lot that, that didn't make male or female students feel safe. What What's the desire here if the constable unit is dissolved? Well, so I think it's, um, I think it's two parts. So as a student union, we run various services um, that ensure student safety. We run an emergency first response team, Um, We also have a student walk-home assistance team where students are able to walk other students home. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of kind of a reimagining of what our campus safety could look like, um, we propose the formulation of a working group um, in collaboration with the students' union, community members, and the university to reimagine what that safety plan could look like um, instead of a special constable's unit. So factoring in safety the entire time, factoring ensuring that students feel safe, even without a special constable's program, um, but there are other ways. Giancarlo, that's that's the biggest thing is is getting heard in this, isn't it? Uh, it sounds to me from from talking to both of you that communication is a big factor here. That it's it's not everything, uh, but it's something that needs to improve between the school, between the uh, you know b- between the, the 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 people that run the campus security and and obviously students and and you're there to represent them, every single one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's been noted in a few articles so far that all of members from our board of directors have received close to 400 emails. Uh, from students. Students are clearly reaching out to uh, their representatives in the Students' Union, to representatives from the university, calling on the university and the community for action. Uh, We've seen on social media that there are organized virtual protests going on. So community members are speaking out, uh, and it's important that the university recognizes student advocacy and community advocacy uh, as valid advocacy. And so we're looking for action from the university, but a lot of students, frankly, are feeling unheard, and they felt unheard for a very long time with regards to their concerns of safety on campus.
Is it, I guess critics of this would say it's it's opportune timing, but like I said, I, I think in your defense, these these considerations, Giancarlo, they were there before this. They this is not uh, he assumed the role in sixteen, so he's been on the job for four years, four and a half years. So this isn't something where you know you pivot and go. This is something to take advantage of because of media covers. This is something to take advantage of because there's a you know there's potential to strike while the iron's hot. All these concerns have been there for years. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, like like you said as well, there was there was uh, these calls have been there since uh, his first day on the job. There were students protesting outside of his office. Uh, there was a motion that was passed similar to the one passed this past Sunday in March of 2016 as well. So these aren't new asks. Uh, it, it's it's great to see that uh, more students and community members are rallying around this again. Uh, unfortunately, it's uh, due to or like. Uh, strongly due to the, the increased tragic uh, events that have been happening in the news. But it is very important to, to, to keep in mind that these have been asks that have been going on for, for years now, almost five years. Uh, and these are concerns that students have had for safety on campus long before that as well. So these are, these are not new concerns, uh, but we are hoping for some kind of action from the university so that students can feel safer on our campus. All right, I got about 45 seconds for each of you, but Fauci, if you could start, I, I want to get a sense from, uh, from you as students what your expectations are in the fall. There's probably a lot of talk, a lot of rumor about uh, about what classrooms could look like, distance classrooms, whether students will be on campus, whether a good chunk of uh, of your curriculum is online. Um, what are what are you hearing and, and what are you hoping for for September? Um, so in terms of direction that we've gotten from the university, as of now, um, the majority of classes will be online. Most students will be able to be home or um, where like they hope to live for the fall. Um, but a very limited number of classes will be taking place on campus. Um, and as for like safety planning, the university will be ensuring that students are maintaining social distancing and that anyone who is on campus is being safe. Um, but I think students can, the bulk of students can um, like hope to not be on campus for first semester. Giancarlo, same, same. You must get a lot of questions and, and especially I would guess prospective first year students. There are some kids deferring uh, and, and hoping to come a year from now because they, they want their university experience to be what yours both were in their first year. And I understand that from a student's perspective and a parent's perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a unique year for sure, and it, it has its unique challenges, and there are unique challenges for, for you know, our domestic students, our international students. Uh, lots of unique challenges that students are facing this year. A lot of concerns from students with regards to virtual uh, classes and courses and what does that mean for your quality of education. These are all concerns that Fozzie and I have been hearing uh, since the first day we started on May 1st, and, and we're hoping that uh, these are conversations that we can be involved in with the university to ensure that students are getting the, the best experience they can. Can't thank you both enough for coming on. Thank you for being leaders, and uh, and uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, explain your side of view, the view today. Thanks so much, Greg. Got it. Thank uh, you so much. Thank you. Fazia Issa, Giancarlo DeRay, both from the McMaster Students' Union, talking about what they want to see in terms of changes on campus. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know if you saw this clip. I mentioned Anthony Fauci. Um, he's been making the rounds uh, and, and should – um, but you remember when those things were on TV, like if I told you the date, whatever date you think was the last time there was a um, like a briefing from the White House on the coronavirus task force. And again, sometimes you'd get sometimes occasionally you'd get information. Sometimes you'd get nonstop comedy and sometimes you'd just be the comedy would turn to darkness and you would just be enraged 
um, as as the suggestion was the one day that, that Trump suggested, like basically like light injections into the body uh, and bleach. OK, we got to we got to bleach out the disease because that'll be a factor that just spraying, you know, spraying a, a, a spray bottle of Lysol on your kitchen counter would be akin to taking something orally or having something injected. Doesn't work that way. So give yourself two seconds here. Might be a little dead air. Dead air is exciting, though. When you hear dead air on the radio, you're not sure what's happened. I never change the station when there's dead air. When there's a boring voice, yes, but dead air, no, totally different. Give me the last date you think there was a White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing. You're wrong. (laughs) April 27th. Like, I can't believe that in retrospect, that we went through all of May and there was there were no White House coronavirus task force briefings. So here's the struggle. There's Dr. Anthony Fauci. And yesterday in an interview, uh, he told the website called The Street, a podcast called The Street, I should say, that the concept of masks, OK, were in masks were not all over the place and we weren't seeing people wear them in stores. I think the first time I did might have been early April, like April 9th, April 10th. I was going back to my parents. I was taking them some groceries. They hadn't gone online grocery shopping yet. I stayed outside. I kept my distance from them. If you knew our family, that's best anyway. But let me just say this. Uh, Dr. Fauci um, became a bit of a rock star uh, in that period of time and was doing interviews everywhere. And we thought, well, he's the one guy we can trust. Not the lady with the scarves, not Trump, not Pence. But Dr. Fauci says something, and it's gospel. Well, he says yesterday that the federal government initially told Americans, hey, don't worry about face masks. But why they did that was because they wanted to make sure healthcare workers had an adequate supply. Here's the clip. I want you to listen. I've got a reaction on the other side. We were concerned that it was at a time when personal protective equipment, including the N95 masks and the surgical masks, were in very short supply. And we wanted to make sure that the people, namely the healthcare workers, who were brave enough to put themselves in a harm ways to take care of people who you know were infected with the coronavirus and the danger of them getting infected, we did not want them to be without the equipment that they needed. So there was not enthusiasm about going out and everybody buying a mask or getting a mask. We were afraid that that would deter away from the people who really needed it. Okay, yeah, I I get it. That's a reasonable argument. The U.S. Surgeon General said in a tweet on February 29th, Feb 29th, okay, before basically I think most North Americans thought we'd have a global pandemic, thought it would affect our continent the way it has. Uh, Here's the tweet. Seriously, people. Okay, that's a great start to any tweet, really. Stop buying masks. That's in capital letters, by the way. They are not, not as capitalized, effective in preventing general public from catching coronavirus. But if healthcare providers can't get them to care for sick patients, it puts them and our communities at risk. But a bunch of things happened after that, didn't they? COVID-19 gains steam, okay? The guidance changes. Uh, Dr. Teresa Tam changed her perspective, okay? Uh, They changed their perspective in the states. Who'd ever thought you'd see Mitt Romney wearing a mask? Andrew Scheer wearing a mask? And, of course, I could go for hours that if Trump and Pence would just wear masks and emphasize the importance, 
countless lives would be saved in the United States. But they've chosen their path. You get the leaders you deserve when you have an election. That's a theory some have. And they're on the path that they're on. But we don't have to be there. Okay? Uh, Fauci, here's his quote also. We know simple cloth coverings that many people have can work as well as a mask in many cases. So even though there appears to be some contradiction of you were saying this then, why are you saying this now? The circumstances have changed. Yeah, to some extent, but a bunch of things jump out at me there, okay? Sure, we should save our limited supplies. Frontline workers need the supply. I can get behind that, but don't lie to us and say, don't wear a mask. Don't make your own cloth ones, okay? I came with a cloth one at home that my mother-in-law made, and that's the one that's been on my face through multiple washings. I don't go in a store without one. I haven't for nine weeks now. But treat us like grown-ups. Don't tell us masks are ineffective. And, of course, should we be making masks in our own country, uh, locally producing them so we don't have to rely on China, on India, on other nations where things are mass-manufactured? Also, yes. But that bothered me a lot. People lost their lives because of that advice. I don't think there's any two ways about it. We could have made our own cloth ones. So I was a little sick hearing that yesterday, reading it yesterday, and feeling kind of duped in late February, early March, and not walking around wearing a mask. I haven't gotten sick, and maybe you haven't gotten sick either, but to me that wasn't right. Treat us like grown-ups and tell us the masks will help. Any kind of face covering will help. And now we're a lot, lot, a lot less worried when we have them on. We just are. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sports on its way back. We're headed to stage two in a lot of regions, not yet for Toronto, Peel, and Windsor, Essex, but that day will come. So what's it mean for getting back on the field, especially for outdoor sports? They've been shaved down probably by more than half. A lot of things would have started. Baseball would have started. Uh, touch football would have started. But the biggest participation outdoor sport in our country, in our province, is is soccer. No question about that. And we welcome in Ontario Soccer CEO Johnny Misley. Johnny, thank you very much for making the time to do this. I appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. Pleasure to be on your show. Well, I'm safer talking to you than I was last night uh, out on my bike. So I want to get back to the soccer field. I'm sure you're fielding a lot of calls from parents, a lot of calls probably from coaches and, and the individual organizations. What's the most common question you're getting over the last couple of days that, that we're, we're sensing a reopening and sensing uh, that we're going to try to get kids back on the soccer fields? Well, first off, Greg, we're very excited as a sport, as amateur sport is in general, at least outdoor amateur sports, to be able to um, return to some form of participation, be it uh, obviously in a, in a graduated way. And with that, um, there's a lot of excitement. Uh, you can only keep kids uh, pent up in their homes for so long in this quarantine or self-isolation period. So it's nice to get them out and be active. That's the most important thing. Uh, the kind of you know inquiries that we are getting either through our office or through uh, the district offices, like Hamilton Soccer locally there, and the various clubs and academies that make up about 650 of them across uh, every corner of the province, is mostly just around um, ensuring that um, return is following proper protocols um, of safety. And uh, we have developed in concert with Canada Soccer, our national governing body, and working with the provincial health authorities, a 77-page return-to-play guide, protocols, and recommendations document, which helps outline exactly that. The 650 uh, soccer clubs and uh, academies across our province are the storefronts of our game. That's where the uh, action takes place. 
And uh, we've put together some protocols in place to, uh, first and foremost, allow the um, and ensure that we have the health and safety of our participants uh, at the forefront of all times. And uh, that's where our membership is falling right now. So most of the questions have mm-hmm. been around just in that area, and they've been reassured, and they feel better knowing that's in place. Johnny Misley, our guest, Executive Director uh, for the Ontario Soccer Association. Are there templates that you can look at from uh, anywhere in the States, anywhere in Europe, much as, as pr- professionally, right? The Bundesliga has led the way, and, and the, the English Premier League, MLS, has looked at some of the things that the German League did out of the gate. Are you seeing it anywhere else geographically, Johnny, that you can say, that's a good idea. That's a good. That's a you know good methodology. That's working. That's something we can adopt or or adapt. Well, return to return to play in sport in general is um, is going on right now around the world, and you very well know what's happening within professional sports uh, across uh, overseas, and now within our two professional leagues here uh, within um, within North America and within Canada, specifically with the MLS and CPL. Uh, pro, pro sports is different. They've got uh, they have to deal with fan bases of thousands of people and buildings and starting with no fans and graduating. So I can't comment on what mm-hmm. they're doing, but they have a professional infrastructure that they use. But what's important for us to know is that while we have worked on this um, from a national perspective with Canada Soccer and our brothers and sisters and provincial and territorial soccer organizations across the country, it really is, um, everyone's using a very similar plan, not any different than what's happening in, in uh, private business if you open up a restaurant or open up uh, your, your, your local library, is that everything is being done in a graduated, phased-in approach and also following and mirroring the mandatory um, health safety guidelines that are in place. Our sector is not any different than a private operator who operates a restaurant down the street. So we have a three, for, for soccer, we have a three-step process. Uh, phase one is return to training, and there's a bunch of requirements in that area. Uh, phase two is return to training and what I call modified games or scrimmaging, and there's parameters around that. And then phase three is return to soccer that resembles pretty well what we're used to in competition when we get to those phases. And we work lockstep with the government and the health, public health authorities, and we're taking a very cautious approach. And the reason, again, we're doing it, it all comes back to the simple statement. We are trying to protect the health and safety of our participants. And on the pitch or field of play, that is, of course, the participants of which 80, 85% of our 500,000 participants are under the age of 18 years of age. So they're kids, youth and young kids, uh, the coaches who have to be on the pitch to do their job as leaders and their support staff, and, of course, the match officials. We can't forget about the referees because they also have a potential to be exposed as well. So when you collectively look at that, uh, we want to mm-hmm. make sure that the, uh, the health and safety of them are protected. Does uh, Are you more optimistic, more hopeful, and, and I'd ask this uh, carefully, for kids that are older, a lot like schools, we could see some form of mm-hmm. classroom activity going in university and in the upper levels of high school. It's a little harder to see at junior kindergarten, kindergarten level. When kids start to play, I mean, my boys both started to play house league when they're four and five years mm-hmm. old. Those are the age groups that are going to be, that's going to, that, there's a lot more, um, uh, there's a lot more at hand there, isn't it, to make sure distancing yeah. and, and the rules get observed by the players? Yeah, there is. And, and uh, you know, in a participation, with a mass participation, you have experience like this at the grassroots 12 and under level, and that's what feeds our system. But at the youth competitive level and high performance level, like our provincial um, uh, youth program called the Ontario Player Development League, which is our high performance program for boys and girls 13 to 17 years of age, it's a, it's a program that has 
placed players into the CPL, into the MLS, into NCAA, into Canadian University Sports. So these are um, players, uh, and even coaches for that matter, and referees that aspire to the next level. Mm-hmm. And during this uh, pandemic, um, the timing of this uh, has um, dampened um, that sort of pathway. But um, again, it all comes back to this is not unique to our sports, not unique to amateur sport. And this is not unique to our society. Uh, people go outside of their houses to go down to the grocery store or go into a, a sporting store. They're cautious in what they do. So we want to make sure, again, that um, we're a return to play, which is for them the competition part on return to soccer. But the training is what this is all about in the development. Um, we train and we develop players so they can uh, once a week perform on the pitch to demonstrate their skills to themselves, uh, first and foremost, to their coaches and to their parents. And uh, returning to training to develop skills, there's nothing wrong with that. It keeps no. them active and it only helps build their confidence. Can't wait. Can't wait. Uh, Johnny Misley, uh, yeah. uh, it's uh, Ontario Soccer Association Executive Director. Tell tell our audience, too, the momentum. I, I've seen it firsthand, but I want you to relate it. The the participation numbers, um, the interest in soccer. We, we really do have a legitimate superstar, global superstar in Alfonso Davies. Yeah. My kid's 12. Mm-hmm. Every single kid on his team knows who that is. Every single kid I, uh, you know, 13 kids on my kid's team, they watch the Champions League. They watch the Premier League. Um, and and again, obviously the World Cup coming to Canada six six summers from now. Mm-hmm. That that felt like it was forever and a day away when it got announced. But um, yeah. we'll be amazed how quickly time flies. The sport had built such momentum in this country, and that goes without saying the women's team and their success for the last decade or so. Yeah, there's no question that um, um, today and, and going forward, these are the most exciting times for uh, for soccer in this country. You know, Greg, up until up until ten years ago, we were largely and rightfully so, and good on us to be a. We can get people to play the game. Very affordable. Doesn't take much to organize soccer. You need a patch of grass, two people on a soccer ball, and you can play. And we were fantastic at getting players to play. And rec- recreational members are massive. And then ten years ago, until now, it's become very sophisticated. And thanks to the efforts from a public visibility standpoint, first off, talk about tremendous effort by our women's national team that's internationally has put us on the map with what they've done in accomplishing two medals at the uh, at the olympics and their performances in the world cup and then on the male side uh, with now um, mls with having toronto fc a part of mls for the last number of years uh, over a decade now 15 years here in the city and for our province and then last year with the rollout of the long-awaiting um uh, canadian premier league to have domestic our own domestic Mm -hmm. league and having three professional teams here in Ontario, when you add these all up, not to mention the fact now that we're putting a pipeline in place, which we've been missing, we've had it on the women's side, and we've seen the net result of that, which has been um, success, and superstars like Christine Sinclair, uh, now the most uh, uh, decorated athlete uh, on the women's side, who is leading the goal count in the world. And then on the men's side, you mentioned uh, Jonathan, uh, uh, um, uh, sorry, Alfonso uh, Davies, and these types of players just don't happen by accident. They come through a development system but because it's become sophisticated. It's put us on the world's map. Now, with 2026, which is going to be the World Cup coming to, to our country, to the United States and to Mexico in the joint operation of this, we're going to have 10 matches in our, in our, in our country. We're going to have training camps in our country. Uh, Messi, uh, he's coming to, to, to North America uh, Ronaldo is coming to North America. Um, all these fantastic 
global athletes. What a great time to celebrate. The World Cup of Soccer is the biggest single sport event in the world and the second mm-hmm. biggest sporting event next to the Olympic Games. So it's going to excite Canada. We're going to have a legacy from this, and uh, it's really going to help grow because it is the world's game. It is the most global game, and as you know, uh, being a fan of it, it is called the beautiful game for a reason. For a very good reason. And and again, I, I hope for parents too, and, and uh, this is going to be the case with a lot, disposable income and, and you know, youth sports is considered entertainment. Some people might have a little less to spend over the next several months or, or longer term, but I, I would say soccer compared to a lot of the other sports and i know you've done you look at the numbers and the demographics johnny it's uh it, it's one of the most affordable sports it'll get your kid as much bang for the buck as as any other sport going right now and again outside versus inside i know people with soccer baseball they have a right to be a lot more because of the data and the science they've got a, a right to be a lot more confident they can get restarted maybe more so than than hockey basketball anything else that's inside right now yeah, and soccer offers so much in different genres of the game. Uh, we have, we have, as you mentioned, just those that want to play just in the wintertime indoor facilities, you can play indoor soccer. For those, of course, who want to play the outdoor game, which is the main game, you can play outdoor. And then there's futsal, which is the FIFA's official indoor game, uh, which is a tremendous game played with a smaller weighted ball indoors and it's in a gymnasium. Um, we used to call it soccer, soccer uh, foot soccer. We used to play as kids uh, kicking, uh, kicking around in our school gymnasium. Uh, that's also an event. And we have adaptive soccer for people that have got, uh, um, you know, visual impairments or we have, we have uh, for intellectual disabilities, people with, uh, that have uh, persons with disabilities. We have adaptive soccer. There's also beach soccer, which is very popular. There's actually a beach soccer league that we have uh, going in our province. My point is that soccer has so many different genres of it. There is something for everybody, including, believe it or not, we have a huge sector of adult soccer and senior soccer. And we even have walking soccer for those of the elderly to help their circulation and getting out and socializing. So there's something for everybody, hence why it's, has, it's such a popular sport in our country. Well, I wish you the best. Uh, I know we're moving, uh, you know, we're moving cautiously, but there's some excitement, some anticipation among parents, players, coaches, everybody else. Thanks for straightening some stuff out, and, uh, and I wish you the best going forward this summer, Johnny. Thank you very much, Greg, and I hope people contact Hamilton Soccer, our local district association. They have all the services there for them to answer their questions. Gotcha. Do that. Johnny Misley uh, joining us, uh, Board of Directors for the Ontario Soccer Association. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Greg Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.